Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, folks. Welcome to episode number two of our DUI series here on the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell, still happily the retired former judge. Are you going to stop that at some point? Nope. We have fooled Judge Studdard into staying with us, Tane, to serve as our guest expert on DUI law. We hope Sweet. to keep fooling him into hanging around long enough for this whole series. Yeah, because if not, we're lost. We're, that's going to be a problem. problem. His, uh, his impressive background includes his expertise, uh, as has been discussed in the first episode. Uh, welcome back, Judge Studdard. So great to be with you guys again. Thanks so much. I can't believe you keep driving in every day. It's so nice. I just yeah. want to see if how much longer the ponytail got. Uh, <laughs> yes, check it out. Yeah, it's getting, getting there. Getting I know, there. I know. It's great. The fact that we're talking about the length of your hair is so <laughs> ironic in so many ways. But anyway. All right. So, folks, in episode one of this series, we discussed the relevant statutes, elements of proof, and the penalties relating to DUI. Yeah. So today we're going to, going to address some of the recent changes to DUI law that began with a series of appellate decisions and ended with some modifications to the relevant statutes by the Georgia legislature. You know, honestly, if you missed episode number one of this DUI series, you need to listen to that episode first. Yeah, you know, we began episode number one with a reminder, Tane, that DUI is a criminal offense and that the constitutional provisions that apply to felony cases equally apply to DUI cases. And that painfully obvious point, as promised, is going to be discussed in some detail in this episode. Yeah, so the landscape of DUI has really changed in the past few years, and for those who may not have been keeping a close eye on the developments, we wanted to spend some time discussing a few appellate cases and the resulting changes made by the Georgia legislature. Now, I'm going to say this, Wade, because we're going to talk about a whole bunch of cases at this point, you want to just go ahead and get the sounder out of the way, and we'll just have it apply for all of them. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. All right. With that recognition out of the way, we're going to jump right in. You've been warned. Want to follow along? Visit our website. Find this episode outline and more information on this episode at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. So Judge Sutter, during your time on the bench, the law and DUI, it shifted like sand. It's been a revolution. Uh, And I can... I can just I can talk about this all day if you got all day because uh, back when I when I took the bench, 1999, uh, you know, contrary to the warning that you gave at the beginning of this episode and the last episode, as you said, the Constitution is the same for for felonies, for misdemeanors, including DUIs. Uh, we really didn't recognize that back in 1999, <laughs> and there's a reason for that. It's all it's totally the fault of the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay, I'm going to lay the fault at their feet. Cause Good, because they never listen. That's what I was going to say. They're not listening they're to this They're not listening anyway. to this podcast. Justice Boggs they, and them might be listening. They deserve. That's right. Yeah, yeah but yeah. all the scorn. Thomas, the Thomas never listens. No. Nah. Uh, okay, so, so back in 1966... The U.S. Supreme Court decided this case, Schmerber versus California. I love, I love that. that. Let's just Schmerber. say that. Schmerber. Schmerber. If you, yeah, if, if you ever just need a random case site, just say oh, that. It's better Schmerber than the case. Feeblefester case. Yeah, yeah, really. yeah we'll talk about that. Schmerber. Yeah, so this guy got a DUI in California, and he went to the U.S. Supreme Court and said, they should have had to get a search warrant to take a blood sample from me uh, in this DUI prosecution. 
And the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, nah, they didn't have to do that because there was evidence that your, your blood alcohol was rapidly dissipating. Uh, and so they didn't have time to get an orange search warrant. They just had to go get it. It was exigent circumstances, Wade, as an exception to the warrant requirement. Nice. Oh, wow. Well, Tane, go ahead and prepare yourself. You're going to teach us about the warrant requirement momentarily. Yeah, right? awesome. Okay. Awesome. Well, they knew yeah. they knew it was dissipating because they could smell it emanating <laughs> from his body. So, it was, it was yeah, leaking. there was there was yes. evidence right there. It's leaking out. Yeah. And so starting in 1966, everybody kind of went to sleep on the Constitution in DUI cases. And... All the DUI case law, at least in Georgia, can't speak for any other state, but at least in Georgia, from, from that point forward, we all just assumed that uh, DUI uh, cases were basically governed by the implied consent statute, uh, which governs uh, obtaining uh, samples of bodily substances from DUI. And the Supremes ended up talking about implied consent rules, didn't they? Oh, yeah. In Birchville? Yeah, right. Well... So, and f so from 1966 to 2013, we all just kind of went along saying, well, let's see, did this test get done correctly or did this request get done correctly under the implied consent statute? Well, at about 2013, uh, somebody went back up to the U.S. Supreme Court in another case. This case is called Missouri versus McNeely. Oh, it wasn't Mr. Schmerber. It wasn't Mr. Schmerber. Schmerber. It's his cousin McNeely. Okay. McNeely... Uh, gets a DUI in Missouri and uh, refuses to, to give a blood sample pursuant to Missouri's implied consent statute. And so the officer takes him to the uh, hospital uh, and says, exigent circumstances, I need to get this guy's blood. Nurse, stick him. And uh, I actually wrote a little skit for this. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I, gosh, I, I, I didn't play, I didn't play my role. That's great. Oh, well, anyway. So, well, in my skit, the nurse sticks McNeely, and McNeely cries, "Ah, you violated my privacy by getting my by getting my blood sample without my consent." Officer says, "Stop your whining. Exigent circumstances. Put your, a bandaid on it. Your blood your your blood alcohol content is dissipating rapidly, and I needed to get a sample. Uh, makes no effort to go get a warrant. Mm -mm. And so McNeely appeals to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court." And the U.S. Supreme Court in McNeely, unlike his cousin Schmerber, they say, wait, you violated McNeely's rights by not even attempting to get a warrant. But exigent circumstances. Missouri says, but your honors, exigent circumstances, you told us. But Schmerber. But, yeah, but Schmerber. And they said, we didn't say it, every case was an exigent circumstance. You've got to make some showing that you tried and couldn't get a warrant in a timely manner before you can go crying exigent circumstances. You're just sticking poor McNeely here. Man. This is where my dog goes. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and the entire Georgia DUI bar at that point went, <laughs> right. what? You mean the Constitution, the Fourth Amendment applies to DUI law? Here we go. Oh, yeah. boy. And hold on from that point forward, folks. Yeah. And so as soon as that case came out, they started filing these uh, motions to suppress. And in their motions to suppress, they say, Judge, you should suppress this uh, implied consent test or refusal thereof uh, because the officer didn't obtain valid consent under the statute, but also under the Fourth Amendment. Oh. 
Interesting. Which is two different things. Indeed it is. And the judge in this case called uh, Williams, Williams versus the state. And this is a Georgia case. Georgia this is state. part of our yeah. little triad or Mount Rushmore of big DUI cases. Like right. Tell you. right. 2015, Williams versus the state. The sites are in your outline uh, at goodjudgepod.com. The judge that, there you go. Look at this guy. He's like a pro. I know. Yeah, my my ambition in life at this point is to become like like the fifth beetle. I want to be nice. like the third member. <laughs> to be the guest picker, the, the regular guest. Well, we picker. have we have friends of the podcast. We do FOP, have FOP, so Maybe you could, could become you could become a friend of the podcast. You yeah. and Garrett wow. Mueller. Yeah, wow. exactly. The, 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 the heavens are just opening. I know, right? So, All right. So, so, so the trial judge, so the trial judge in Williams versus the state uh, gets this motion that says, "What do you?" What do you mean there's no consent under the Fourth Amendment? We don't need no stinking Fourth Amendment. We don't need no stinking Fourth Amendment. (laughs) This is a statute. The officer clearly complied with the statute. End of story. Period. Motion denied. So counsel takes the case up. The Georgia Supreme Court says, uh, apparently the trial judge didn't read Missouri versus McNeely. And uh, yes, you do have to consider Fourth Amendment consent in addition to statutory consent, and them's two different things. So, trial judge, we're sending you this case back. Please consider Fourth Amendment consent. And suddenly a brave new world we are in. And those cases ultimately end up in Elliott, Olivek, you talked about Williams. Right, right. Real recent cases of a wad, and right. then a case called Bradbury. Now, there's a bunch of other cases. There's right. a bunch of other cases. A bunch of other cases. But we're going to sort of talk about those. Now, Tane, I know you don't like to read, and Elliot, I, I, I think, is about not. 150 pages. Yeah. Plus. See, this is the one where I beg and plead for my friends on the appellate courts. Please, just just give me a summary at the beginning. That's all. I, I just need a summary at the beginning. You know, you're a big talker now that you're retired. You didn't say that when Elliot first came out and you were still on the bench. You know that? I did, but I said it very quietly to, to myself. Yourself. Yeah, exactly. So let's start with Elliot because most people incorrectly believe that was the 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 lodestar. That was the big change. And, and Tane, it just wasn't. When was Elliot decided, Tane? February of 2019. So, Judge, get, tell them sort of how Elliot crystallized all of this. Yeah, so, yeah, Elliot was not just a bolt out of the blue. Elliot uh, was really the logical and natural culmination of these other cases in the Olivet case. So, the Olivet case uh, was, you can't really talk about Elliot without talking about Olivet. So, we, we, we really need to mention it. All least. right, folks, just so that you know, our outline's radically different than, than, than where we're going here on the podcast. <laughs> okay. But so, that's okay. Yeah, but yeah, you got to know about Olivet. Because Olivic, here's the thing, that what we've talked about to this point, uh, McNeely, Williams, they're all talking about uh, Fourth Amendment, right? Search and seizure law. Uh, But the the, uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, made it clear uh, in another case, I'll just skip through this quickly, Birchfield versus North Dakota in 2016, the year after Williams, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court says, okay, so the Fourth, the fourth Amendment, search and seizure, that applies to blood tests, but a breath test, as far as the Fourth Amendment is concerned, y'all can consider that a search incident to arrest. Okay. All right. So what does Creative that mean for, for, for our purposes? Uh, well, for, for our purposes, what that means is for a search incident to arrest, you really don't need consent 
uh, to get to if you arrest a guy in his car and there's evidence of the offense that he's being arrested for in his car, you don't need his consent to go in there and get it because it's a search incident to arrest. You can grab that. Same thing with the breath test. The U.S. Supreme Court said in Birchfield. Okay, so now we're so now we're no longer worried about consent, Fourth Amendment consent for breath tests, and mm -hmm. we all breathe a sigh of relief and said, "Okay, great, that Williams stuff, that McNeely stuff, that really only applies to blood tests. So let's just stick with breath tests, okay?" Well, then the Georgia Supreme Court drops the other shoe in Olivic and Elliott, and in Olivic came up. Obtained, with, Olivic was decided when? In uh, 2017. Yeah. So in 2017, the Georgia Supreme Court said, okay, cool. So the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't care anything about Fourth Amendment consent on breath tests. But guess what? There's also the Georgia Constitution. And the Georgia Constitution. That pesky Georgia Constitution. That Georgia Constitution. Yeah. And it has its own little quirky rules about not Fourth Amendment searches and consent for that purpose, but self-incrimination. Oh, yes. And so so we're, we're going to, they, they tweak it just a little bit to change the analysis, and it has a whole different outcome. Has it? a whole different outcome. So, yeah, if you're somewhere besides Georgia and you refuse a breath test, um, then uh, your worlds may apply. We're going to do a disclaimer here that we're only <laughs> talking about Georgia law. That's right. That's right. So under Georgia law, they came up in Olivic and said, uh, self-incrimination protection under the Georgia Constitution, paragraph 16, Article 1, Section 1, paragraph 16, uh, means that uh, you have a right to refuse and, and the state has to get uh, consent, not under the Fourth Amendment, but under search and seizure principles under the Georgia Constitution. So now we Remember are. Tame, we talked about this in the last episode. Yes, we did. So episode now we're one, back people. to talking about constitutional consent and not just statutory consent. Under Olivic, and Olivic stopped right there. When left us all wondering, okay, well, if there's a privilege against self-incrimination for breath tests, does that mean if I refuse a breath test, the state can't talk about it? And we all sat there and wondered about that until and, until Elliot came along in what year? 2019. That's right. And in Elliot, in a, like a 98-page opinion. Uh, they told us, yes, uh, the refusal of a breath test is just like invoking the privilege against self-incrimination under the Fifth Amendment, and the state can't talk about that. And, and if you look at the Elliott case, the citations for which are on our outline at goodjudgepod.com, but if you look at Elliott, it goes through some of this history basically going, I think, all the way back to the Magna Carta or perhaps the Code of Hammurabi. But um, it, it talks about all of this and how this evolved into the standards that they then set out. In oh, Elliot. yeah. And, and shout out to my friend Justice Peterson. It's really a scholarly work. It is. But also shout out to my friend uh, Justice Boggs, who after the 95 pages that Justice Peterson wrote, Boggs wrote a three-page special concurrence, which is essentially uh, an executive summary of what the 95 pages says. God bless you, Michael Thank Boggs. Thank you, Michael Boggs. It was, it was wonderful. I, <laughs> and, and he said, and the legislature, y'all can fix this if you would like to. Yeah. <laughs> that was really nice of him. That Invitation. Really nice. And Ben, did they? No. Well, they may. They, we'll talk they, about they that. We might, that might be a whole different podcast. All right. So, yeah, so okay. So let's just tell the people, so, so that people who are not in this world deeply, 
Understand that when there is probable cause to make an arrest, there is a code section 40-5-67.1 that requires the officer who is seeking to get you to give some sort of sample to advise you of what we call your implied consent rights or your implied consent warnings. I've always called them ICWs, but just because I don't want to say a lot of words. Yeah. Well, there's a that, statutory warning. And, and But you've got to read it virtually verbatim. So they read usually from a card. Yes, yeah, substantively correct. Correct. And so you have to, and you can only do it once there's probable cause to make the arrest. Right. So the, the, the version of 67.1 that was in effect at that time, Tane, was flawed. So now you've got an officer putting handcuffs on somebody and giving them what Elliot ultimately found were to be faulty instructions. Right. Well, the, the warning that existed at that time said, uh, if you refuse a test of any of these things I've asked for, which might be breath, blood, or urine, uh, then that can be used against you in court. Well, now after Elliot, that, that's no longer true. It also right. said that your license... Um, may be suspended, Maybe. And, that, and they wanted it to say will be suspended. Yeah, which, something like that. So that was the the smaller. That was the deck chairs on the Titanic. It wasn't right. the Titanic itself. That's and, right. And, and you guys who who can't see us because we don't, we're actually an audio medium. Can't see that both Judge Stuttern and Wade are holding up as if there's an invisible card in front of them. And, and now, and now, Judge, you've produced I, I have my an actual, actual my card. own personal, yeah, implied consent notice. So this but, is and, the new but, one. But this the is reason, the new one. but the reason that that's important is is that it was required that they read it essentially verbatim. They were reading it verbatim, and they were reading something that the Supreme Court then ultimately said, yeah, that wasn't correct. Yeah, the officers weren't doing anything wrong. No, no, they were, no, they they were, were doing it right. following instructions. And, and they what have, most yeah. people who are in this world will see, the one that you're holding is green. Yeah. That different times, based upon different case law, you would see the red one or the blue one or the white one. Yeah. I mean, every, everybody had, to, had a different one. But officers typically get that card out of their breast pocket and read it just to make sure they say it the way that it's supposed to be said. And, now, and, and I'll tell you what we'll do, folks. Um, we'll, we'll see if Judge uh, Stutter will let us borrow his card, and we will put a copy of that card on our website at uh, goodjudgepod.com. You bet. So just, it's, just to understand, it, though, it's, it's now wrong. Subject to change. <clears throat> Oh, Lord, you're going to open this can of worms. I thought we <laughs> were we going to get through today without going Sorry. through that, but here we go. Sorry. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends, it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. All right. So listen, the, the Elliott court said that the ICW, the implied consent warnings were faulty, even though the officers are doing exactly what they were supposed to do right. because a defendant can't be, cannot be compelled 
to perform an incriminating act under the Georgia Constitution, please listen to episode one for an entire discussion of that topic. You may remember we talked about where we, you can't admit the fact that somebody charged with armed robbery, asked for a lawyer, therefore you can't do that here. The Elliott Court sort of just clarified and, and, and rang true. That decision to exercise your legal right cannot be used against the defendant at trial, and therefore the defendant was making that decision based upon faulty information, Tane. So tell, tell folks how sort of the, the, the language from the Elliott decision, how this legal problem was resolved. Yeah, so the legal problem that was raised in that case forced the Elliott court to find that OCGA sections 40-5-67.1 and 40-6-392 are unconstitutional to the extent that they allow a defendant's refusal to submit to a breath test to be admitted into evidence at a criminal trial. So just like we were talking about earlier, where you can't use somebody's refusal to give a statement to the police and request for a lawyer against them, they said, well, you, you, you also, it, it's a parallel thing. You can't use that uh, against them at trial. And so a lot of people thought Elliot was out of the blue. And as you've pointed out, Williams came in 15, Olivet came in 17, and they were ringing some bells. And all of those cases were cited in Elliot as proof. We were ringing the bell. You just kept blowing through the stop sign. <laughs> right. Uh, if you read Olivet and if you read Williams before that, uh, you could hear the robot from Lost in Space is back there going, danger, Will Robinson. Uh, it was coming. You yeah. can see it coming. God, we are so old. People are going li- to listen to this and go, what is he talking Danger Will about? Robinson. There'll be seven people that will smirk. <laughs> on a new series on Netflix. It's new exactly. again. Exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. So, Tane, just Tane, talk about this in general, not necessarily tied to DUI. The warrant requirement. Sure. Fourth Amendment requires you to go get a search warrant. Right. But there's some recognized exceptions, right? Right. I mean, you have the exigent circumstances exception, like we the talked about. The automobile exception, the automobile. search incident to arrest. But what's the one that sort of blankets them all? Well, I mean, wait, obviously it's consent. I mean, exactly. uh, the, yeah, I mean, the exception to the warrant requirement, no run, warrants required if you have some form of consent. But that consent has to be freely and voluntarily given under all the facts and circumstances of the case. And we're going to end up discussing that at a future episode with this concept that became known as actual consent. And then in Olivec, as you noted, Judge, Olivec talked about the fact that the Intoxilizer 9000 requires you to provide deep lung air. It's not just regular breathing. So that's the act. So it's an act. And therefore, it's just like raising your shirt or putting your foot in the mold or whatever that you can't be required to perform an act. A a potentially self-incriminatory act. Exactly. Unlike standing there and having blood drawn from you. That's not an act. That's just standing there. And that's a really critical difference here because where we stand now is that, uh, so if you're analyzing blood tests, you're under the Fourth Amendment. You have to figure out if you have Fourth Amendment consent. But if the defendant refuses... That comes into evidence because it's not covered by self-incrimination. Unlike a breath test, you got to figure out if you have consent, actual consent, for self-incrimination purposes under the Georgia Constitution. Good news is it's the same test as the Fourth Amendment. But if that person refuses, that's not coming into evidence. Right. So That's a really good point, though. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good distinction to make. So let's sort of... 
I don't want to recap and wrap this up. I'm, I'm saying that on um, the majority decision and the concurring opinion that we talked about, Justice Boggs graciously wrote for those of us who can't, who thank, don't have long you, attention spans. In Elliott, both hold that the, de the decision only affects breath tests and doesn't impact, impact blood testing. And footnote 30 of that majority opinion in Elliott actually stated, although, as we discussed in Olivec, this paragraph 16 analysis of the Georgia Constitution is limited to breath tests. They note that in Olivec, in Elliott, they said, now we said in Olivec, nothing we say here should be understood as casting any doubt on a case called Strong's holding that paragraph 16 was not implicated by a drug test. And the concurring blood, opinion blood says... Blood test. I'm sorry, blood test. And the concurring opinion said... The scope of these decisions is limited to chemical tests of the driver's breath. They do not apply to the test of a driver's blood. Right. So all of that sort of, I think they tried to, to, to say what you said much more succinctly just moments ago, that the Fourth Amendment test and is different. Right. So the question became, all right, what about urine test? I mean, nobody really wants to get involved in that a whole lot because that's messy business. Nobody wants to do that. But, but. Does all this apply to urine test? And it, in my humble opinion, and when I was teaching some other classes of court, I kind of said, hey, guys, you're having a wee-wee on demand. That, to me, the logic of those cases applies to a urine test. And then, Judge, they went and answered that this year, didn't they? They did. And the answer actually kind of came out, Wade, well, it depends. Uh, little urine joke there. It depends. <laughs> Wow, he's got jokes. <laughs> okay, so, so yeah, so the case that they decided uh, this year, uh, the Awad case, 2022, citation is in your outline. Uh, the Supreme Court said, yeah, if you are requiring someone to pee in a cup, uh, you're requiring them to perform an act, as you as you suggested in your uh, seminar presentations. That's covered by self-incrimination, which means that if that person uh, refuses uh, the test, can't be talked about in court. But they added a footnote, which is interesting, that said, well, it might be different if you didn't require them to perform a test. If you just say, lie there and we catheterize you, not an act. Then, you're, then you have a Fourth Amendment search, but not self-incrimination. I'm going to tell you. In that situation, you're going to get my consent. Yeah. You're going to get my totally, urine right away. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I'm reading that. I'm going like, oh, I'm, I'm but, I, but it's funny you said that because I, having never read that opinion, I will freely admit, um, I was like, well, what about catheterization? Uh -huh. All you got to do is just lie there Listen, and be still. Justice Colvin is way ahead of you there. Way to she, go, Verda. She's, she's smart. <laughs> so <clears throat> as a result of Elliot, the, the legislature didn't do anything with Olivet, but they did it after Elliot. They rewrote 67.1. Now, this is my disclaimer. I am a sitting active judge who honors and respects my Supreme and appellate courts. These other two clowns are retired and they don't care as much. I so am a humble practicing lawyer, I will let you know. If they want to criticize the legislature's rewrite of the implied consent warnings, the new 40-5-67.1, I'm going to allow them to do that. Now, remember, 67.1, it has a different thing that you're supposed to read to a commercial driver, a different thing to a driver under 21. But just to make this podcast more direct, let's just talk about what has to be read to a driver over 21 of a yeah, regular vehicle. Absolutely. Okay? 
Yeah, I, I could read it for you here if you want me to. I think I think that you I'm, should. I mean, yeah. well, I mean, you know. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. So Absolutely. there's there's that. Go yeah. ahead. Okay. So uh, you have to read it the way that that the office. No, would you read can't it, read it that like monotone. The, what like was that? Really uh, fast. Evelyn Wood speed reading exactly. that back in the <laughs> right, day. Yeah. Yeah. No, read it. Read it so that people can understand. Okay. Well. Bef- okay. So after Elliot, when they said you could refuse a breath test and it can't be used against you in court, they had to rewrite the part that used to say, uh, if you refuse, then that refusal will come into court against you. Uh, But now here's what the, uh, the notice says as of 2019. The state of Georgia has conditioned your privilege to drive upon the highways of this state upon your submission to state-administered chemical tests of your blood, breath, urine, or other bodily substances for the purpose of determining if you are under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Foghorn Leghorn reads the implied consent warning. <laughs> Go ahead. If you refuse this testing, your Georgia, I say your Georgia driver's license or privilege to drive on the highways of this state will be suspended for a minimum period of one year. Your refusal to submit to blood or urine testing may be offered into evidence against you at trial. If you submit to testing and the results indicate an alcohol concentration of 0.08 grams or more, your Georgia driver's license or privilege to drive on the highways of the state may be suspended for a minimum period of one year. After first submitting to the requested state test, you are entitled to additional chemical tests of your blood, breath, urine, or other bodily substances at your own expense and from qualified personnel of your own choosing. Will you submit to the state-administered chemical tests of your parentheses? Designate which test? Close parentheses. So there it is. It says that if you refuse to submit to blood or urine testing, mm-hmm. that may be offered into evidence against you at trial. Right. What's we, wrong with that now? We just decided that wasn't ever admissible at trial. Blood, yes. Yes. But a, a wad, I guess. Now says urine, No. So, so now they need to revise it again to say your refusal to submit to blood testing may be offered into evidence against you at trial. So, so we're going to ask for a lot more blood tests is basically the bottom well, line. Well, and that's one of, you know, let's talk about that for just a second because that's worthy of a conversation. The Georgia Crime Lab is one of the finest institutions I've ever been a part of. And I have always had massive amounts of respect for their scientists and, and their internal procedures. They're very, they are highly certified, and it, it's, it's an impressive place. But they are already struggling mm-hmm. to process the evidence in rape, robbery, murder. Not that DUI is not important, but they're already struggling with the existing caseload. This, these series of cases, there needed to be a concurrent, I guess, expansion of the crime lab to people who are just testing blood because they are getting samples on an astronomical basis. I don't know, you retired last year. Had you felt the effect of this in the delay in blood tests by the time you left Dementia? Had you started seeing it yet? Oh, yeah. It's You You don't want to have to try cases in in state court where they try misdemeanors exclusively, where you're going to need to drag uh, a, a crime lab witness down there. And if you do, you need to give them lots of notice and work with them about specially setting those cases. It's really a lot. It, it's, it, it is much more complicated. And when people started talking about what we're going to do to get out of the backlog that came from the COVID, this was one of the things that most of us who were talking to decision makers we're discussing, you need to expand the crime lab. You need to fund the crime lab. We need to Absolutely. keep these scientists, once we train them, 
because we can't get it in. We've talked about this at some length. You cannot do that by video. There's a Yates case from the 11th Circuit, and there's some other cases that say you just can't do that. So they have to come live, whether it be Henry County or Columbia County yeah. or Cobb County. They come to Columbia County. That's all they did that day. Yeah. They didn't go test some more blood and then drive to Columbia County. So anyway, that's one of the things that is going to be a real problem. Now, so the refusal to – so this this brings up a logical question, Judge. We've now figured out what happens to post-arrest post testing. What about pre-arrest testing? What if you say, I would like for you to stand on this line with your foot in front of the other and walk nine steps and turn, and you're like, no, nah, I'm good. I don't want to do that. Is that admissible? And and can you even be asked, told, can the jury be told you even asked to do it? You mean standardized field sobriety testing? Standardized field sobriety testing. Even some unstandardized. Even unstandardized, yeah. So, Tane, um, since all this came up, like the walk and turn and the one leg stand and the HGN or horizontal gaze and sensor. Um, we're going to get into those and, and how those tests are done and performed and all that later. Right. But talk about and on talk about what happens about somebody's decision to refuse to participate in field sobriety tests. Sure. So if a defendant's decision to refuse or participate in a post arrest testing can't be introduced into evidence. The question arises, obviously, do those same uh, principles apply to pre-arrest testing? Now, logic says yes, um, but now the Georgia Court of Appeals has specifically answered the question in the affirmative. So in a case called Bradbury, uh, which is also in our outline in, uh, at goodjudgepod.com, the defendant refused to provide a breath sample for an Alco sensor test. So that's just the little device. You don't have to provide deep lung air. You just got to blow into it for a few seconds. Um, the defendant in Bradbury refused to provide that breath sample. And during trial, that was ruled inadmissible. Uh, by the trial court, and the state appealed that ruling. So what happened in that case? Well, there had been case law that had said that refusal to submit to field sobriety testing was admissible. Right. But all of that was decided before Elliot, Olivek, and Williams. So, Judge, why don't, you, why don't you tell— Huh? Timing is everything. It is. Yeah. So tell the folks what happened with the Court of Appeals in Bradbury. Yeah. So, well, just like uh, breath testing before Williams, Olivic, and Elliot, if you refused a breath test uh, prior to 2015, yeah, it was coming into evidence. No, no, no uh, Mr. Def uh, Prosecutor, I asked the defendant politely to take a breath test, and he refused. And there was even a uh, standard uh, jury instruction about what the jury could do with that information. Mm -hmm. After that, uh, no more talking about refusals of breath tests. And after Turnquist, uh, no more talking about refusals of, at least as far as Turnquist was concerned, the uh, roadside breath test, the portable breath test. But just as uh, Elliot was not out of the blue, and once Turnquist was decided, uh, it was pretty clear that you weren't going to get to talk about refusals of any other field sobriety testing either. And that's what Bradbury held as well, that exactly what, he, what you just said. There was a subsequent decision in Ortiz that reaffirmed the Bradbury decision yeah. that refused the refusal by a defendant to submit to standardized field sobriety testing. We're going to talk about that term as a term of art in a little while mm. in a future episode is not admissible at trial. Yes. Was Ortiz was decided May of 22. That's right? hot. Law. This is new Today stuff. is June 20th. I mean, 22. that is hot off ah. the presses, baby. So let's recap what we've learned. Tane. Yeah. 
And Judge Stuttered, I can't call you Ben yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's recap what we've learned today. Georgia appellate courts have found that refusal to submit to post-arrest testing is not admissible at trial. That's Elliot Ortiz, Williams, et cetera. Right. And as a result of those decisions addressing post-arrest testing in a DUI case, the Georgia appellate courts have concluded that refusal to participate in pre-arrest testing is also inadmissible at trial. And all of that is consistent with cases under the Georgia Constitution dating back to the 1880s that said that the rights afforded by the Georgia Constitution as to self-incrimination are greater than those afforded by the U.S. Constitution. Anytime a defendant is asked to perform an act, even if it's just moving your eyes in an HGN test, an act that might tend to incriminate them, the defendant can refuse that request, and that refusal is not admissible at trial. As always, our episode outline for this, for this episode can be found at goodjudgepod.com together with all the citations to authority for all of these different points of law and cases that we've discussed. Yeah, all of our consultants for this podcast keep telling us we're not saying goodjudgepod.com enough. So we're going to fix be that. Sure, yeah, yeah, be sure and say that. <laughs> Folks, we're going to continue this series on DUI law, and it will ultimately include several different episodes. You don't want to miss any part of this exciting series, so be sure to follow the Good Judgment podcast on your favorite podcast platform and like us just for fun i'm wade paget i'm ben stuttered and i'm tame kell um you know one of my favorite routines is that ron white routine where he says uh at that point in time i had the right to remain silent but i didn't have the ability to do so and gosh i've seen that happen so many times in court so salute to you ron white thank you so much thank you for listening to the good judgment podcast we try our best to give you actionable information, but in a format that does not make you want to hurt yourself. Two thoughts. Some topics allow us the latitude to be a little bit more fun. Number two, if we failed you, we will try to do our best to do better in the next episode. We know that you have lots of choices and we're honored that you chose us this time. We're kind of amazed to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former director and executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law, my new part-time employer. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises all along, but we didn't, so... Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation with Superior Court Judges all across Georgia. Wade and I are also grateful to the State Justice Institute who allow us to do this through their generosity. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, SJI, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact someone else with your complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Please visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all our episode outlines and more details about our podcasts. Some of you send emails asking for copies of the outlines. Seriously, people, they're available 24-7, 365 at the website goodjudgepod.com. And we say that like 20 times during every broadcast. But seriously, you can upload or download or otherwise use them as you wish 
and on your schedule and at your convenience. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this episode. Any last thoughts before we wrap this up? Yeah, Wade, Stephen's going to have his hands full with this one.